Hello everyone and a warm welcome to this episode of the Restorative Justice on the Rise podcast. I'm founder and host Molly Rowan Leach. It's been an extraordinary journey since 2011 in hosting dialogues and inviting in global community for live conversations. So thank you for your participation. Please make sure to Stay in touch with us by signing up for our e-news at restorativejusticeontherise.org. You can also find out so much more about the movement with hot links out to a lot of programs, media resources, and in addition, services for conflict resolution and individualized trainings for organizations, communities, and schools are now being offered by our programs. Thank you again. Today's podcast is a very special opportunity to engage in a panel discussion with Edward Sivalandra, who is the editor of Colorizing Restorative Justice, and including Belvi Rooks of Growing a Global Heart, Sky Bowen, and Eric Butler, who is featured in the award-winning documentary, Circles. The topic for this panel that was hosted originally at the end of October 2021 is the imperative of truth, acknowledgement, and giving voice, RJ's responsibility. Please join us now as we open up this panel and dialogue. And please pass it along and spread the word about restorative justice on the rise if you've been inspired by today's session. And join us in the future for other podcasts and live dialogues, as well as training offerings. Again, restorativejusticeontherise.org. And a deep bow and gratitude to Living Justice Press for the contribution of time and of books, uh, Colorizing Restorative Justice, namely, towards this project called Doing Us Justice. Enjoy the opening panel, and thank you again for being a part of this global movement. Welcome, everybody. And I think we'll go ahead and open up this space tonight. Um, And of course, since this is an international community and network. Thank you to those of you whom the sun may be um, rising for now at this moment. Um, on this, in this part of the world, um, I happen to be on Ute lands. I'm wishing to honor grandmother Chipeta. I'm in Colorado, um, central United States. My name is Molly Rowan Leach and I, along with the amazing Neely Upamaka will be your co-hosts and co-moderators tonight for doing us justice, looking back to move ahead. Uh, Tonight's framework is really about taking a deep dive. Uh, We want to set the tone right off the bat that this is a heartfelt and real space for conversation and dialogue on this extremely important topic. Um, It's such an honor to have our panelists with us, and I mean that in every sense of the word, from what I've learned and what I know we all have learned from the wisdom and presence they bring and reflect also in each of us. Um, So the important frame here is what is restorative justice's responsibility 
and imperative even towards race and equanimity. Thank you so much for being a part of this opening. We are of course going to be journeying for some weeks together and we'll be having some very real conversations that we hope you'll be um, engaging in, uh, including tonight. So I just want to um, take a, a brief moment to do some introductions from the heart. Instead of taking the avenue of reading a script of linear accomplishments, I'd really love to share with you just a little bit of the essence of these beautiful people that we'll be speaking and sharing tonight. Um, and first of all, I wanna just thank um, my co-moderator and co-host tonight, uh, Nilimi, Nilima Upamaka, who is an extraordinary practitioner in the field of restorative justice. And her work um, is with primarily with talking peace as is one of our panelists, Eric Butler, who is the founder of Talking Peace. And Nalima is the program coordinator and development officer, as well as a practitioner. And it's a real honor and privilege to be moderating with her tonight. Um, we warmly welcome that you also become involved in the conversation. We want you to, to feel comfortable that this is a dialogue and we'll have many opportunities in the 90 minutes to two hours that we have together to um, interact deeply. That's our goal. I also want to thank and honor our partner, which is Circles, a restorative justice documentary, um, Becca Vershbo and Cassidy Friedman, whose uh, love is made public on the, um, uh, of, of this work, of the restorative process is made public on the big screen. And it's an award-winning documentary. Um, of course, Eric is one of the featured um, actors, although he's being very much himself in the film. We get a glimpse into the life of what it's like to be um, an on-site restorative justice coordinator at Ralph Bunch in Oakland, California. So, deepest thanks and honoring of each of our panelists. Um, as I noted, I'd rather give you the essence of these people um, and I'll go one by one and briefly so that we can then open up the dialogue. But I just want to say that, to, that each of these people are very dear to me, um, even though I'm only getting to know uh, some of them. Um, Eric Butler is the founder of Talking Peace. He also is um, one of the United States' first on-site restorative justice coordinators within an educational system, that, that being the Oakland Unified School District. Eric is um, an example of authenticity. He brings to every interaction this sense that you could pretty much tell him anything um, the trust is there up front with Eric because you know that you can be real. He is um, very deservedly one of the, the, the first recipient of um, an, a very special award honoring an elder in our field, um, Denny, and I'm so sorry I'm forgetting his last name. Hopefully it'll come to me, but he ran um, programs in Central Oregon and was a, a very inspiring figure in the field um, who passed away all too soon. 
Um, he is, um, he's also, Eric is also featured. Uh, he received that, excuse me, that award from the National Association from, of Community and Restorative Justice. He is featured in the film circles. He gives of himself um, selflessly. And in addition, most recently was featured in Mother Jones Magazine in the current issue on this work that he offers. And Sky Bowen is somebody that I have admired from afar. She is um, actually, I'm gonna put up the slide here. Um, Sky is an educator with over 19 years of teaching experience. Um, this is her beautiful bio. Um, she's been very involved and uh, a strong advocate for social justice and youth advocacy um, and is deeply uh, a voice um, on social media in her work in her community for the, the need of addressing um, unaddressed harms and how this field can go about doing that within schools, within communities in, a, in an authentic manner. Because of course we know that there's a lot of talk, but uh, not so much practical action towards solutions. So I've been touched by Sky from afar in, in listening to her online. So the benefits of this online world, some, one of them is that we get to connect with people that are extraordinary and learn from them. So thank you, Sky. I don't believe she'll be here for a few more minutes, but she's joining us in a bit. I'm, I'm here, Molly. <laughs> oh, she's here. Sky, welcome. It's so good to see you. Thank you thank for you. being thank here, and honoring you and honoring Eric. I, I, I wanted to show you, this is his um, Mother Jones article. Um, these slides will be a part of the recording and resources, by the way. So this is an extraordinary piece um, in the current issue, as you can see. Let's come back to beloved Belvi Rooks. Um, Belvi is an extraordinary human being um, who has dedicated her life to social justice, um, to civil rights, to dialogue, to doing social healing work with um, mutual colleagues such as James O'D, who is the former Amnesty International Washington DC director, um, and more so uh, a partner with Bellevue and others, Dr. Judith Thompson included, in the International Social Healing Project, which took them to many places in the world to hear, um, to listen, and to dialogue around deep, deep harms and wounds. Um, she and her her late husband and beloved um, partner, uh, Didon Gills, um, wrote um, some beautiful works together. They founded Growing a Global Heart to acknowledge and address slavery's legacy and to do tree plantings. Belvi gives of herself selflessly. She's a prolific writer, an essayist, and an extraordinary human being. And it's an honor and privilege to have her here with us. Um, and I just want to point your attention again to the work of Didon and, and um, Belvi in these books that, that are here up on the screen. I give you the springtime of my blushing heart. We know that justice is love made public. And what does healing look like? What does it feel like? 
That was one of their framing questions in their partnership over many, many years. I do hope that I'm doing justice to the, to the life of Deedon Gills and of course to Bellevue. And thank you so much Bellevue for being here. And finally, um, but not lastly or leastly is the incredible Edward Valandra. And Edward, I'm going to try and pronounce your, your um, heritage. Sikchanjgu Titontuan, born and raised on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation. And would you help me out with that in a moment, Edward? Um, I just want to honor you, Edward, for your devotion to creating colorizing re restorative justice along with the many people of color whom are included in that effort, an anthology uh, of, of profound essays. Colorizing Restorative Justice, whom Edward is the editor for, and Robert, uh, Honor, Honorable Robert Yazzie is, um, he wrote the foreword for this, this book. Um, as you can see, there are so many other things that Edward brings, and I was deeply touched by what he shared along with Jasmine's story when he was here in Colorado, in Denver, at the last National Association Restorative Justice Conference. Um, and one of the things that touches me the most is what has been on his mind, which you can see um, undoing the harm and concerning settlers in restorative justice. And that um, how can settlers in restorative justice, while citing RJ and RP's indigenous roots and committing themselves to repairing harms, live on stolen land? So from that framework, we open the discussion more deeply. And if you're just joining us, welcome. We're about to open up our dialogue for tonight with our panelists. And what we're going to do is we're going to invite um, a, an organic response, okay? So the first, first question will be asked, um, and we want to leave room for this to go in the direction that it, it might. So we're going to set the tone right now with the opening question and then allow us to go into this deeply and for each of our panelists to um, take the opportunity as they wish to respond. So we're not going in an order per se, we're going as our heart moves us and we'll support that deeply. Um, so Neely, I just want to allow you to have a voice here as my beautiful co-host and co-moderator. Would you do the honor of, of opening up our panel dialogue with the first question? Yes, thank you, Molly. Um, and hi, everyone. Um, again, my name is Neely Pomaka. Um, I'm the program coordinator at Talking Peace. I also see that I um, have some, I think, Ruth and Annabelle from Community Works. I also have the honor of working at Community Works. So I just want to say hi to all of you and to all the other participants who've joined us night um, and I'm incredibly grateful to be um, in the company of our amazing panelists tonight. Um, so our first question for our panelists is what is restorative justice and what are its responsibilities to an unaddressed harm concerning BIPOC communities, ancestors, and the generations to come? Yeah. 
And so whoever feels moved to speak first. You have two questions, right? Do you need me to um, repeat the question? Yeah, please. Okay. So what is restorative justice and what are its responsibilities to unaddressed harm concerning BIPOC communities, ancestors, and the generations to come? That's um, that's a question that I know that we're all sitting within in our various ways. Um, you know, I don't consider myself a restorative justice practitioner per se, though a lot of the intergenerational wisdom sharing work and dialogue work over um, time that Didan and I have done um, has brought us into this conversation. And one of the things I've been sitting with and actually just did something yesterday, um, we spent some time and it's in the books that, that were up um, in West Africa, um, and, you know, one of the, and it was actually, we were, it was our, it was our, it was our, it was our wedding and our honeymoon and we ended up spending, um, making our first, um, stop after our wedding, one of the slave dungeons and, and Elmina in Ghana where we were married and, and, uh, for me, you know, an important part of the process of reconciliation and restoration is truth-telling. And um, being in West Africa uh, and being in Elmina, um, I realized that the question of truth-telling um, is key because what we, are confronting and have confronted in the work that we do is the erasure. You know, the, 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 the wound of erasure. And I, if you don't mind Molly, I'll share later just um, kind of um, a little paragraph that, um, you know, that came for us and maybe I'll just do it now and then uh, have that be um, the context, because one of the important th things for us was um, as, as we stood looking out at the vast ocean beyond, I tried hard to imagine what reaching this spot, this door of no return must have felt like for some long ago unremembered African ancestor as she stood trembling on the precipice of a ter terrifyingly unknown and uncertain future. One of the most horrifying bits of information shared was the fact that at the height of the slave trade, there were so many dead and dying bodies tossed into the sea at this very spot. The frenzied feeding opportunity resulted in the change of the shark migration pattern along this entire coast. Tears flowed uncontrollably as I glanced at the ocean a few feet below. 
it was hard to process the fact that for over 300 years, without interruption, millions of African men, women, and children had begun the long journey into slavery from this very spot. The names of the people passing through the door of no return have all been erased from our historical memory. The names of the mothers and the fathers and the children and the sisters and the brothers and the babies and the aunts and the potters and the weavers and the farmers and the priests and the healers, most of whom were women. The numerous slave dungeons, over 100 of them on the west coast of Africa in places like Elmina and the Cape Coast are living monuments and stark reminders of our inhumane history. For a couple of days, the tears flowed uncontrollably. And in that space, it was the erasure, the lack of the truth telling that made um, this country have a very difficult time coming to deep and authentic dialogues because the truth telling and the reality of the situation um, that isn't taught, that isn't understood, that isn't claimed. Um, so I find that for, so, so, so truth telling for me is an important part. Uh, of the reconciliation process. It's, it, it really begins with depthful truth-telling. Yeah, I was, thank you, Belvi, for sharing that and for sharing the that beautiful piece that um, you just articulated here. I really enjoyed and appreciated you um, sharing that from your heart. And um, I think for me, when I think of restorative justice, the first word that comes to mind for me is community. Um, it's about community and relationships and authentic relationships that are built um, from an understanding of who we are and who one another is. And so that when something happens in community that is a harm that has happened, we are about figuring out the, the relationship um, that has been impacted by that harm and doing what we can to reestablish those relationships and connection. And so whether it's in schools or police force or youth justice, whatever, um, whatever background that we are coming from, I really and truly believe that the relationships and community are important. Um, but what has happened, I think, with restorative justice is we've taken a practice from Indigenous communities and we've taken a practice um, from Afro-Indigenous communities and we've co-opted it in a way that no longer represents what the community and relationship is about. And so for myself, I am Canadian. I'm from Brampton. I'm from the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Um, I am on unceded stolen land. And that land that I'm on is actually home of the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, the um, Anishinaabe, um, the Ojibwa Chippewa, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. That's where I'm from. And we have to first, if we are going to do this work that is originated from Indigenous communities and Afro-Indigenous communities, we must recognize that first. That is the first thing that we need to do each and every time. And so um, when we're talking about using restorative justice in schools, especially because I'm an educator right now and looking at how we um, address the harms that have happened, well, we first haven't recognized where we have gotten the practice from and who we have stolen it from just as we've stolen the land. 
And until we do that, we are always going to have a very Eurocentric focused way of doing restorative justice work that is not in line with connecting with the very communities that we have impacted. And so to deal with those things, I think that what needs to be addressed when we're looking at black, brown and indigenous communities is that we have to understand the lived experiences and hear those stories as Belvia shared. We have to be able to share authentically and be willing and open to create culturally safe spaces for people to be able to share their lived experiences and understand where they're coming from before we use restorative justice as a means of discipline and hurt and harm, just like any other practice. And so as Dina Sims often mentions with socio-emotional learning practice that we do in school, she often says, we need to be careful that it doesn't become white supremacy with a hug. And restorative justice is the same thing. We need to ensure that the work that we are doing doesn't become white supremacy with a hug. Otherwise, it doesn't have any meeting or authentic engagement with the very students that we are trying to connect with. Right on. White supremacy with a hug. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, Eric, um, thank you for those beautiful presentations. Um, I've just learned so much just by listening to the wisdom that I just heard. Um, and I, and I, I'm so humbled by it. Um, when I think about, um, when I think about restorative justice, I have to think about my ideas of restorative justice when I first started practicing it. It was actually white supremacy with a hug. Um, it was, um, I was thinking about it in a way where the way it was packaged and it always looked like it was, um, a way of communicating with um, black and brown children to keep them out of conflict or not, not keep them out of conflict, to respond to conflict. Um, but as I started doing the work, I realized that it was much more than that. Um, restorative justice to me is a way of finding out what our common value system is and how do we use those values, values to get the things that we want and need from our community. Um, we are disconnected from our humanity as, as, as people are, are, of, of color. Um, and we didn't cause that disconnect. Um, I think it is imperative that we um, use restorative justice practices in a way that um, we intentionally build relationships to discuss our values and, um, and see how they penetrate our needs. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to thank uh, Belby and Sky and Eric. Um, I, I've seen Sky before, and I like, and I'm, I'm glad to be here with uh, uh, Belby and Eric, and also Molly. Thank you so much. Um, the question is, what is RJ? I, I think when I hear that question, as I think about it, I think more in terms of what does justice look like? When I think about what does justice look like, it's whose justice are we talking about? And so, so in the West or among Western peoples, Western nations, you know, they, there's, a, there's a really different understanding of what justice is. It's often adversarial, confrontational, and relationships mean nothing. Um, 
when we talk about indigenous justice, it's all about fairness. It's all about trying to build a relationship and, and how to make it right, as, as we say back in my homelands, which by the way, Sky, I, I appreciated your uh, land acknowledgement. I generally um, want to segue into that as well. I am in the occupied settler territory of my homelands. That is, when I say settler occupied, I mean in, a, in the most illegal sense possible because the land has been stolen as a result of settler colonialism. And one of the things that I have clearly noted between the Americans' cousins up in Canada, the Canadians, is that the settlers in Canada often give land acknowledgement without exception almost. And that's been very striking to me as an indigenous person whose homeland has been split between Canada and the United States. Um, and I think that that to me is like part of what this relationship and fairness is all about in terms of justice. I also appreciate Molly struggling with who I am. You know, say who I am. That's who I am. I'm not, I'm not an American Indian any more than I'm a Native American. I hate those labels because they're not me. And so when I say who I am, I am Lakota. I am in my homelands that is illegally occupied by settlers through the theft of land and genocide of my people. And I say settler colonialism because it's a structural, it's structural and just not a one-off event. And I see that every day when I step out my door. So to me, what does justice look like? It's the return of my land. It's what it is. And it has to do with the relationships that, that emanate from that. I have a lot of settlers that are friends of mine, a lot of settlers who ally with me and are accomplices, but that's, that's only a small start in terms of what is restorative justice, in terms of what does justice look like. I am all for land return of, of, my, of my homelands. And let me tell you, the most forward-thinking settler in RJ becomes unsettled when they say, what is your responsibility to, to un unaddressed harms? Return the land that was stolen. And they say, what, give the land back? I say, first of all, your English language is pretty, uh, pretty interesting because you assume that it, was yours, that it is yours to give and it's not, it is yours to return because you stole it. You can only return stolen property. And as far as I know, stealing is still a crime. <laughs> We're not, we're not talking about petty theft. We're talking about theft of a magnitude that goes on for 500 and still counting years. So what is RJ goes to the heart and core of what I think in terms of what does justice look like? That's the core question. And <clears throat> I think it has a lot to do with that issue of not being erased 
as Balvi talks about. I, I don't want to go further because I think there's still a lot that I have to say, but I do want to um, move the discussion because it's a pretty good discussion. So thank you. I want to honor in silence for a moment and invite responses. And thank you, each of you, so much. I'm happy to jump in, uh, respectfully so. My name is Rochelle Edwards, and I do identify as a restorative justice practitioner, proudly so. Um, I've been doing this work for 20 years, um, not by myself, but I started with the spark of curiosity and love and appreciation for this work and thankfully I've joined forces with others on this journey. And I've learned a lot, I've grown a lot. I know I still have much, much more to learn and that's why I'm here today because I'm confused. As somebody who has started doing this work quite innocently and with very good intention, from what I hear in this dialogue, I contract because I don't wanna do any harm and yet I don't know if what I'm doing as a white woman practicing restorative justice could be considered as harm. So I'm here to learn, I'm here to understand, I'm here to be very honest. Um, for me, restorative justice honestly is a way of life and it's a life that values accountability, community, authenticity, connection, equity. So it's not a practice for me, it has now become who I am and what I do. 20 years ago, I started working at San Quentin State Prison and um, I went in there starting to do a parenting group for men who wanted to reconnect with their children. And at the time I was learning about this thing called restorative justice and I started becoming a facilitator of dialogues between victims of crime and the person who caused the harm. And then I saw all these men sitting in prison who I honestly believed wanted to make right the harm that they caused, but I didn't see a pathway for them because they didn't have somebody who was saying, oh, I wanna meet with you. And so I created a curriculum for people who are incarcerated on the inside to um, hold themselves accountable and to connect the dots of their lives and to understand in a community and in a culture of love and kindness and respect 
and understanding um, how they ended up on that day committing the crime that they, that they committed and helping people to understand that they are so much more than the worst day of their lives that we all are. So that curriculum took off, that program just took off. It wasn't my intention, but it's now in prisons throughout California and beyond. It's become a program that's identified through the California Department of Corrections as a milestone program. And um, so I'm here today, 20 years later, um, wanting to understand if I have caused harm in any way by not fully understanding. And if I need to apologize, I'm so happy to do that, if that's what would help. I didn't intend for any of this to come out, it just did. So <laughs> I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna trust. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rochelle. Thank you so much. Just acknowledging your courage to open that up and to allow what needs to be present here tonight together to be present. Thank you. So coming back to the panelists and also to anyone at any time who would like to add, um, please, that, that's the territory that we're in in this space together tonight. We're not on a rigid agenda. We're opening uh, the flow and depth of a conversation. And thank you to our panelists. I'm hesitating to bring in any further questions. It feels that the first one has more it wants to unpack. So I'll give it back to our panelists to pick it up. Can you restate the, the first question again as it relates to the most recent, the response that we're holding? Absolutely. Um, Neely, would you be willing to read it again? And um, we'll revisit the first question um, and certainly picking up on the threads that were deeply impactful for each of you as panelists that you heard from one another from this question. Thank you, Neely. Yeah, thank you, Molly. Um, so the question is, what is restorative justice and what are its responsibilities to unaddressed harm concerning BIPOC communities, ancestors, and the generations to come? Rochelle, as I, as I was listening, or as I listened to you, I, um, I, the question that came to mind for me, given that I too have, you know, uh, at an earlier, earlier stage in my life, did some prison work, you know, I mean, you know, going in and 
there was a women's group um, that was very active uh, in uh, writing letters and, um, you know, making contact uh, and really, and this was, of course, this was George Jackson, this was that era, you know, uh, which was, uh, and a lot of activism during that era, as you know, in terms of knowing the history was around prison and prison um, and, and, and making certain that the prisoners uh, were not isolated because that was their chief concern. And, and so, and you know, and Angela was at UCLA. And so the prison um, movement, as you know, during um, the 70s and the 80s was one of the unifying movements in our communities where you know you volunteered to drive somebody to the prison five hours away to visit their son I and mean, it was programmatic it was writing letters but it was really um in responding to the prisoners plea that they were isolated and to the extent that they were isolated great deal of harm and the movement's response, in addition to anti-apartheid and everything, but the, but the prison movement and what was going on in prisons and making sure that, that people had connection and points of contact. And, um, and coming out of that, um, which was very harmful and very dangerous and um, and was one of the things that particularly conscious and activist prisoners, people who were in prison, asked the community to take on. So I, I listen to you and I sit and, you know, looking at the trajectory of the history, uh, it just sounds like what you're doing is a continuation of what was asked by the people in prison themselves, that, um, and, you know, things can always be changed and tweaked, but um, I just remember um, that isolation, that request, um, you know, the San Quentin Six uh, were on trial. It, I mean, it, it, the, the entire focus of the movement at one point, one of the, I mean, there, there were several, but prison, and it wasn't, we're just responding to the needs and making certain that those of us on the outside were aware day to day of what was going on with prisoners, and, you know, with them. So, uh, you know, I, I was sitting listening to it in the context of that trajectory. And, you know, I mean, my husband, you know, Didon did work in San Quentin around environmental issues, um, which always surprised me that there were so many avenues of um, connection uh, where people went in weekly and, uh, you know, uh, 
I, it was not my experience, but one of the things that, you know, he reported uh, coming up, you know, in Watson, another in a younger period in his life, being a shot caller on the streets. One of the things that I was really struck by when he came home after his first visit, having been invited to join this, um, to come and speak to, you know, people in San Quentin who were organized around environmental issues and, uh, I was, and I said, well, how'd it go? And he said, well, first thing they were trying to locate, once they realized I was from Watts, who do you know? I mean, you, you know, they started asking about, you know, who he knew and, 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 and he said the nature of the conversation was really beyond why you're here, who are you? You know, so you know, bloop de bloop and, and, and you know, and, and he said that um, that was, um, that as there was as much talk about the environmental issue that he had gone into, there was as much talk about the community and what was going on in the streets and, and who was where and where they, and so, you know, he said, you know, I walked in and, I, you know, I met the baby brother of somebody I knew and so I, I listen and I, I think about it in that historical context that you you did the best you're doing and 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 you're reaching and you're you know and all we can do is sometimes the best we can do and reach out and and seek support and and I feel like your openness to asking and receiving is part of a larger you know kind of evolutionary unfolding that began with the killing and isolation, not just of activist prisons, but that's when we became engaged. And, 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 and so to look at how um, it has evolved and is evolving, uh, I just uh, send a deep bow of kind of your being being there for, for, for so many, because uh, the isolation and, the, and, and, and also being there and being here, willingness to be in, in both spaces. Rochelle, I, I, I echo what Belvi says, and I, I think it's very, um, it's really great to see that you're, you're open to the learning and you're open to reflecting even on your own experiences. And I think, you know, um, my journey with restorative justice started actually in youth corrections. So I worked in a youth correctional facility um, right in my community. Um, and it was a closed custody uh, facility for high risk offenders. And uh, the first month literally broke my heart because 80 to 95, 80 to 90% of the, the men were black. Um, and the disproportionate numbers of black youth in there was devastating. Um, but that is where I started my journey with restorative justice. And I saw what I learned from it was great, but I also began to see some of the challenges um, and difficulties with it in terms of connecting with some of the young men that were in there. And so when I was first there, um, I found that restorative justice was often used as a means that if something happened, the only, the only way that students actually saw what restorative justice was, was if they had done something wrong. And then they were sent to do, have a conference. And this conference ended up being only administrators and officers and that one young person. And they would 
uh, have to answer a series of questions. And if they didn't answer those series of questions in the way that was expected of them, they weren't allowed to come back and be re reintegrated into school. And that was the process that was done. And so when we're looking at restorative justice, there are, there are ways and strategies that people have used it to kind of make it um, like a, a fix it solution, a quick fix, you know, let's, let's just get this done and over with and move on. And if you don't respond in the way we want you to respond, then you know, it, it doesn't make a difference. You, you are the problem, not the actual conference itself, right? And so, um, so that's how I had first learned it. And I just kept thinking, there's, there's, this is off. This doesn't make sense for me in terms of making those types of connections. Um, so I remember there was a time, sorry, my husband is right here. I should introduce him. <laughs> we are a team, we do a lot of stuff together. So this is Orlando. Uh, and he has a great- Orlando. Well, well, hey, Edward. <laughs> I'll share a story if we get a chance at the end. But um, yeah, so one of the things that I, I noticed is there was an issue that happened within my class with me and the, and the TA. And we had established a very good relationship with these young men. But there was an incident that happened that we ended up having to report. And as a result of this report, it resulted in the, the young men that we were in there with having to get strip searched, which we didn't realize was going to happen. So we we're like, man. These guys are going to come back tomorrow. They're going to be like mad. They're going to be, you know, because we, we, they're going to be like, you set us up. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? Right. And I mean, there, there's a, a relationship between the school and the um, facility that you, you have to kind of team up and there's a partnership. And so there's certain things that are beyond our control as a school because the facility comes in and makes certain decisions. So anyways, they were coming in the next day. And thankfully they didn't want to do this formal conference. And I was like, no formal conference because I knew what that meant. And I didn't want that to happen because I thought it would actually um, make our relationship with those students even worse. Um, so these young men came in the next day and um, you know, there was uh, another um, educator in the building who came in and wanted to be involved in the process. And so when they came into the room, they were like, okay, so, you know, just so you know, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. Do you guys have any questions? Well, these young men just sat here like this, like, we're not saying anything <laughs> when this person came in because they didn't have a relationship with that person. They had no connection. They didn't trust them. So they weren't going to, they weren't going to say anything. As soon as that person left the room and it was just myself and the TA, we had a conversation and it was like, what's going on? And they, they were like, listen, we wouldn't have come to school if it was anybody else. We were upset with what you did, you know what? And, and we let them share their frustrations and their challenges. And we also shared, you know, the challenge that they had put us in and the difficulties that we had. And we, and before they even came in, you know, they're used to seeing their books out, you know, what were they gonna do in class um, for that period? I took all of that away. I said, that, that's not happening. We need to just talk about this conversation. And so they knew that the importance was, the priority was that relationship, not the schoolwork at the time, not trying to get them to, to focus or just have a, a shortened time or decide how much time they would actually have to talk. If it took the whole period, it was gonna take the whole period because that relationship was important for both of us, both the youth and myself and the TA. And it's at that point in time that I realized that oftentimes what's missing in restorative justice work is understanding the community and the relationship that needs to be prioritized. And so Rochelle, whether it's you or somebody else, I think looking at the um, 
the impact, that relationship that you have coming at young people, no matter where they're coming from, whatever their experiences are, or if you're working with adults, coming in with no judgment, coming in with an understanding of understanding who they are and really wanting to build that relationship is first and foremost, the priorities, that relationship and that community. And even as you continue this work, um, I would encourage you that if you are in spaces where you are working with a lot of people of color, who around you too, are you bringing alongside you in that work? It doesn't necessarily mean in your position that, you know, as a white woman, you feel that, you know, you can't do this work anymore, but maybe there's other people that you need to build and uplift around you too in this work that are people of color that you can support. And I think sometimes that's often what's missing too, is the ability to empower other uh, people of color to do the work and to be authentic in those relationships and to learn from one another. Mm -hmm. So we can't feel bad about being white and being in restorative justice work but we do have to re recognize that there is some harm and impact that may have happened. And what are we going to do about that to address those needs and to empower people of color to also come into those spaces and work alongside you? Yes. What Sky said. Eric, can you say that again? I don't think everybody heard you. I just said what Sky said. Um, what Sky said, yes. Yeah. My mm. spirit said the exact same thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, very briefly, maybe I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I guess I would really just want to know, at least for, for, for my community that I'm from, um, there isn't a family member who, hasn't gone to, I mean, it's common that, that you generally have someone who went to prison. And I think for me, the larger question is, despite all the good work we do within the, within the um, industrial prison complex, the privatization of prisons and the outsourcing of all of that, I guess as an indigenous person, I said, what, I would ask, why are there even a need for incarceration? There are societies that never had that before. And what is it about those societies that they never had prisons? They didn't incarcerate people. And I think, and I think those are the more critical and deeper questions. I would, I would want to really know in order to help understand the structural dimension of why there, why there is incarceration, why there are prisons, and who's in there people of color, why are they in there? You know, the criminalization of the black body is a fact. The, the fact that you could be killed just for being black or incarcerated is a burning question about the structural dimension of race in the United States. You know, I would not be surprised if the industrial prison complex with respect to the school to prison pipeline may actually look at third graders who are often punished, you know, in, in school. I, I can imagine the prison industrial complex looking at all the data across the states and saying, oh, based upon the number of third graders that have been disciplined for whatever reason, 
we can estimate the number of prison beds we'll need in nine or 10 more years. And, that, and, and that's, a, that's a structural violence that is built into the system. And it seems so normalized. That's a structural violence. And I, 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 would, I would wanna raise those issues in terms of educating the, the, the prison population. It's like, I was, a, I was a university professor for about 15 years and I would talk about colonization or settler colonization. And the native students would go, so that's what that is. I've been experiencing that all my life and now I understand what that is. It, it's a structural dimension. It's not me that is bad. It's not me that is making bad choices. It's a system that is orienting me or managing me so that all what's left are bad choices, you know, to survive. And of course the system is rigged. I, it, you know, I've talked to a few of, the, a few of my colleagues who are native and they go in to the prisons and they talk to the native prisoners there. And it's a political education. They get, a, they get politicized in the prison. It's just not like I was done wrong, but no, there was a wrong done. And that wrong has none to do with you as an indigenous person. It's just that because of settler colonialism, the structure demands your elimination. Either you get killed or you get incarcerated, or there's some other way to marginalize you. So, so this erasure that I think Valby talked about is, is very real. So some of, the, some of my colleagues that go into the prisons, it, it, they talk like I'm talking. They, they sit down with the indigenous prisons and say, look, this is what's going on. This political education happens and they come out more empowered from those discussions because someone has put the framework together for them and they see the linkages and the connections and that makes them a lot more effective in terms of resisting and understanding. So, so I, you know, I, and we, and we suffer that all the time. When you put, you know, the, the Lakota people that are in prison, oh yeah, them, you know, with the socioeconomic indicators, yeah, they're poor, they have a substandard education, they have all the social deficiencies that mark them but they have other things that are very strong that they take out, our, take out of our community. They are the most fluent speakers. They are the most traditionally grounded people and they're put away for five to 10 to life. And that deprives our community of cultural transmission. So for us, it's not a matter of, of um, you know, who, who, who got caught committing a crime and was charged and went to prison for it. But it's a, it's a very deliberate process by settlers to take the cultural patrimony out of our community and put it in a prison where we don't have access to it. That's the crime right there. And for us, that is genocide. That is a settler colonial structure that exists and it's ongoing to this day. So, you know, um, 
I have relatives up in Canada who left Minnesota in 1862 because there were bounties put on my ancestors' heads for resistance.